Welcome to the Holden Village Podcast. Holden is a community of education, programming, and worship located in the remote wilderness of the Cascade Mountains. These snapshots provide a glimpse into the learnings taking place in our community. Let's tune in to this week's highlight. My name is the Reverend Dr. Asa Lee. I serve in my secular capacity in my regular job. I am the president and professor of theological formation for ministry for Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Prior to that, I served as director of African American Church Studies, as well as one of the deans at Wesley Theological Seminary, where I directed student life, campus life, but also taught in areas of African American religious studies. I'm a pastor and ordained minister in the Baptist tradition, and for a number of years have worked with diverse communities to do diversity, equity, and inclusion work. I also serve on the Holden Board, uh, and I'm excited to bring those skill sets to the legacy and traditions of Holden Village. This week at Holden, I explored concepts to help resource people who are interested in doing anti-racism work, and more specifically, naming what it takes. And so I offer for a snapshot of what does it actually take to be an anti-racist community? What does it take to be an anti-racist person? And what does it take to do the work of dismantling racist systems? There are four moves or steps that I would offer. The first is to explore and understand the way in which white supremacy and white privilege were created. That means an examination of history and specifically the way in which white theology, European and Eurocentric forms of Christianity and colonial powers sought to dominate black indigenous peoples. This is a troubled history. It takes a lot of work and for particularly for white communities, you will discover aspects of your life and history that you do not, you're not otherwise taught. For example, we're not always taught how blackness became a thing. How does white become a race? How does black become a race when race itself has no meaning? It is a social construction. So for someone to be black is an imaginary category. To some, for someone to be white is an imaginary category based solely on appearance. Well, that is a construct that's created in, the, in Europe as a part of colonialism. White people needed to describe themselves, white Europeans needed to describe themselves different and apart from the African bodies they were seeing. And so they called those bodies, and they were Portuguese and Spanish, Negro, and they then later described themselves as white. And so that was a multi-year process in which several centuries of Roman Catholicism was involved in this. The Pope made decrees that issued things like blackness being equivalent to perpetual slavery. These are all things that were developed over time that we're not taught in public school and we're certainly not taught in our communities. And so colonialism, together with the experience of the Christian church, you know, things like the conquistadors. Of course, we know the legacy of Christopher Columbus in 1492 and all of these other kinds of conquests contribute to passing on white supremacy. So the first step is to understand the history. Where does this come from? How does it get formed? And it takes a very long time. 
after you explore that history, which is troubling and disturbing, you then shift to what is it? How does it impact America? And how does the church, whether you, if you're a person of faith, how does American Christianity and American Protestantism contribute to this? Some of us have heard of the concept of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, or WASP. When I was in school, we learned the, that many of the founding fathers were not Catholic. They were Anglo-Saxon, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And people like Benjamin Franklin, who were Episcopalian, Thomas Jefferson, Episcopalian, William Penn, who was a Quaker. There weren't Roman Catholics in Independence Hall in Philadelphia in 1776. And so when you read the documents and the journals of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, you see a narrative. I recommend if you're really interested in this work, reading the notes on the state of Virginia by Thomas Jefferson, where he talks about the role of religion in public faith and that Catholicism was problematic and Anglicanism and what would become the Episcopal Church was an acceptable form, although it would not be considered appropriate to make it a part of the state. And so, you know, we have religious motivations at the heart of our republic, but it privileges white male, and if I were to use 21st century language, white male cisgendered heterosexual voices. And so who gets the vote first? When the direct Declaration of Independence refers to all men are created equal, it literally means men. And it means a certain kind of man, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. And it takes the better part of 200 years to really perfect what this means. And each time we have to include more and more people. The church is involved in this way. Protestantism, of course, we do not have in America a national church. But what we do have is a deeply Protestant ethic that is a part of this part of our culture. So our work ethic, whether it's Puritan work ethic, Quaker work ethic, many of the immigrants who come to this country are bringing their religion with them. They're bringing their Christian faith with them. But it is a Christian faith that is rooted in white normative behavior. All of that is happening at the same time that you have slavery in existence in this country and you enslaving black and brown people. You are bringing genocide to indigenous peoples in this country. And so then we start using terms like manifest destiny, where we say that that God ordained that the white man would rule the whole of North America. And so we kill the Native American in the South. We kill the Native American so that the the enslaved black person can then work the land. That's going on at the same time that we're talking about freedoms and liberty and justice for all. And so understanding your role and your part in, and what I mean by your role or your part is the legacy of your tradition, your family, your community. How did segregation, how did Jim Crow, how did racial divisions take place in your community? So you've got to do that work. After you understand the broader history, you need to understand the history of your particular area, your particular community, and be able to work through Not that you are you as in the 21st century needed to own slaves or find a history of owning slaves, but the history of building up racial difference in this country means that you inherit the privilege of 
what the generations before you did. I like what Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote a book entitled Cast, The Origin of Our Racial Discontent. I like the metaphor she uses. She says, America is an old house that we all have inherited. And on the surface, when we enter into the house, it is a beautiful grand house. The walls look good. The, the floors are in excellent shape and the rooms are beautiful. However, when it rains, the roof leaks. And for people who are privileged enough to live at the top of the house, they don't see the roof leaking. But those who live in the basement and have no opportunity to live in the upper floors know it's raining because the basement floods. And that leaking house, while beautiful on the surface, its walls are rotting. And what she says is America is that house of which we've all inherited, of which it looks perfect on the outside. And for some, there seems to be nothing wrong. But for others who are in the basements, in the nooks and crannies of the home, who have never had access to the other floors, they see the rotten core of the house. People, the current generation of Americans did not build the house, but we all have to live in it, which means we all have to work on it. I think that's a useful metaphor to talk about how we deal with our privilege in this way. So first, you've got to figure out how you are wrestling with uh, history more broadly. Then you have to wrestle with what does it mean to be dealing with your history locally? How do you process this? And then third, what are the models of resistance throughout history that actually fought against racism and fought against systems of oppression? The truth of the matter is that an exploration of resistance movements particularly from the African-American community, can, it can give us a lot of insight. So whether it was a religious resistance, which was born in the African-American church, which was born in the hush harbors and the quiet hiding places of the South in the 19th century, where slaves would gather in swamps and in bushes and in forests away from the prying eyes of plantation owners, and they would sing songs and they'd plot escaping and they would pray to a God that they believed heard their prayers because they were slaves. Whether it was not believing the white preacher when the white preacher said slaves obey your masters and believing the black preacher when the black preacher says, tells the story of the Exodus and says, Moses told Pharaoh to let my people go. Those places and those spaces became the birthplace of black resistance to white supremacy. And so you can trace a direct line between those hush harbors and those secret places to the civil rights movement, because the civil rights movement sang many of the same spirituals that those slaves sang in those resistance areas. When you in the late 19th century and early 20th century, when white communities told America that black people did not were not able to think and could not produce art and could not take school, be in school. Black leaders started historically black colleges and universities. They created art in the form of the Harlem Renaissance. They wrote poetry. They achieved in ways that resisted those tropes or those normal ways of of speaking about black people in the 19th and 20th century. And so 
black persons in this country found strong ways to resist systems of oppression that inform us in the, the current day. We learned how to protest in the 20th century. We learned how to organize in freedom schools. We learned how to think for ourselves as, as African-Americans. And so then if you study those movements, the last move is to begin to organize for yourself in this current day and age. And that means starting locally. If you're a church or a community organizing person or you, you, you are part of community groups, what are the issues that are facing your community today? It might be affordable housing issues. It might be access to a fair wage. It could be the disparity in education in your community. What are the issues that are facing your community? And then what, who are the people who are leading that work? Because you don't want to replicate as white communities have often done, swooping in trying to fix problems that they don't know, really know when there are already people on the ground working. In many parts of the U.S. now, there are chapters of Black Lives Matter leaders who are working to raise awareness of issues affecting the black and brown community. And the truth of the matter is, if it's affecting the black and brown community, it probably is affecting everybody at some level. And so how do you find those people? How do you engage those people? Well, Sometimes it's as simple as typing it in Google. Other times it's asking the school principal. Other times it may be the social workers in your community. But there are resources that are already available to you in your community that says, here are the issues and here's what we need and who are the, these are the people you should talk to. And then make your community, whoever they are, make them aware. You may do Bible studies, you may do book studies, you may invite someone to come in and talk, but understand that you've got to then make a plan after you read or after you listen to then mobilize for action. There are lots of national resources that will be of help to you. The Equal Justice Institute or EJI.org is a great place to deal with criminal justice issues. The local NAACP branch in your community may be a good place to start. And then also the local religious organizers, whether that is the pastor of an African-American religious organization in your community or a immigrants' rights organization in your community. The point is this, you cannot get to that fourth stage if you have not done your educational work in the first stage, which is looking at the broader history of colonialism and white supremacy, looking at how that history then, in the second move, looking at how that history impacts your church, your community, and your legacies, and then what are the movements for social change that worked, then you can start advocating for change there. So it's been a pleasure, pleasure to sojourn this week with the folks in Holden to be able to explore this work together. We've been challenged collectively and we have explored deeply and richly from history in each one of these areas and our hope is that you would do likewise as a part of your journey in your home communities. The community this week was very engaged in the conversations that we had to include things like talking about national topics like the ongoing fight in terms of what kind of history are we going to tell, right? We don't want to tear down statues of Confederate leaders, but we also don't want to tell the history of white supremacy in this country. And it's lifted up as opposition to critical race 
theory. So we talked about that. We talked about cancel culture as a part of this. And my take on cancel culture is that cancel culture is a backlash to what my parents and grandparents would call consequences. Life is about choices. And when you make choices, there are consequences for the choices you make. While the First Amendment protects speech and actions from government regulation and government reaction, it does not necessarily protect you from your fellow citizens who will boycott you or decide to not frequent your company or business. Now, I also problematized cancel culture in that I said, I don't like the language of cancel culture because what canceling someone means is that they cease to be a part of the community. And that means we've denied them the possibility of redemption. And all of us have had an opportunity to live life long enough that we've one moment in our life does not represent who we are. And so I'm always wanting to leave the door open for redemption. And in the current climate, someone makes a mistake, they get quote unquote canceled. It seems like they never have the opportunity to enter back into the human community with one another. So we talked about that. We talked about what are the proper ways to engage this. We talked about policing and how does policing figure into this and how do we create an imaginative way of thinking through policing and what are the ways that communities can participate in addressing community policing. And that's a complicated subject. But what we do know is that healthy policing starts with the community and not with the government. And so how do we create systems of policing that help us to do that? And again, I would submit it goes back to understanding the history, being able to articulate that impact of history on your community, and then what were the ways to actually dream differently about what this means. And so we had lively discussion. We learned a lot from one another, and we learned a lot this week in the village. I mean, I would say that at the end of the day, all of this is about, and we, we talked about this a lot, in the sessions and it's embodiment. It's not just that you learn something, but it's then how are you going to live it out? And talking about race, dealing with racism, always impacts people's bodies. And that's not just racism, it's true of any oppressive system, whether it's gay, lesbian, transphobia, anti-immigrant fears, all of those impact people. And so if you're going to do this work, you've gotta be mindful that talking about these issues impact people's lives. And even though in certain communities, you may not be aware of, of, you may not have known about what was going on and therefore it's real to you, it's been a lived reality for people for quite a long time. And so how do you balance that as a real important piece? But showing up in your body, showing up as a person who is trying to make a difference is an important first step in that. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.